Welcome to the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Muja Masgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Elena Sitnikova from Australia. Originally from Georgia, Elena is an award-winning academic and researcher, associate professor of cybersecurity and networking at the College of Science and Engineering at Flinders University. She's a global leader in critical infrastructure protection and cybersecurity. Her current focus is on intrusion detection for supervisory control and data acquisition systems, cybersecurity, cyber physical systems, and industrial IoT. Her contribution to the field is demonstrated through multiple competitive grants she has received from industry, state, and federal government partners in Australia. She is recognized as a national contributor to Australia's ongoing defense. She's also an innovator, innovative educator in cybersecurity. For her educational achievements, she has been awarded the internationally recognized Senior Fellowship of the Higher Education Academy and an Australian Award for University Teaching. She's also the winner of the AI in Cybersecurity for the Women in AI Awards 2022 Australia and New Zealand. Elena, welcome to our show and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for kind introductions and welcoming me to your uh, talk. Thanks. <laughs> sure. Thank you. So your work in cybersecurity and AI has been tremendous. Can you tell me a little bit about your work and what you do exactly? I'm very fortunate to work in a very exciting area, protecting our critical infrastructure. If it's compromised, can be really potential disaster for our society. So when I started working in this field, the infrastructure systems were very much isolated from the networks. But now, as the technology is evolving, there's more and more devices New technological advancements devices are connected to such systems, which making the system work smarter and get access to the real data from the fields, but at the same time posing 
very, very big challenges for people like myself, researchers, to make sure such systems are defended from any attacks. And this kind of concept uh, brought us to different side of defect detection of the cyber attacks. If the earlier systems were using standard signature-based intrusion detections, and that was not always in the real time. So nowadays, the systems, they proceed so much data, we call it heterogeneous data coming from IoT devices. And IoT devices, as we know, they all have connected to the internet, they have IP addresses, they have memory storage, they have a lot of functions and they can store the data in their devices. So this old data and so big data require the new methods of processing. That's why how I ended up in artificial intelligence, because this is the only way we can proceed this much data and detect abnormal behavior, such critical systems. Wow, that's so fascinating. I know that actually, as we mentioned it, as one of the first Australians to be certified secure software lifecycle professional, you have developed unique software lifecycle courses. What, what does it mean? Can you tell me as a you know layperson, what does it mean, a software lifecycle? And what have you exactly developed in the course? Um, this is a very good question because... I, um, I'm an engineer by my background, so I'm bachelor in control systems in electrical engineering. But when I started doing more software development, I explore the ideas, how I can translate the words of the customers into requirements through the whole life cycle, life cycle of development of software, uh, testing that software and produce the good product. So, but that was the software development process developed ages ago. And when we start talking about security, very often the software developers, they put this testing for how secure is their software on a very and like a penetration testing, which we we know uh, that is a black book testing. The whole concept of creating secure software, it's not just testing it at the end. You have to build in software inside the whole life cycle. When I came to this approach, I decided I would do the proper certification. And there is a information security, security consortium, IC squared, which offers that certification. So I'll sit on exam and I provided um, this uh, knowledge and, uh, and been certified. Since then, I started teaching my students how to develop software without adding security at the end but embed inside the whole life cycle starting from the requirements. Hmm. That's, that's pretty interesting. How, how is it different than the lean development and agile, basically, methodologies? Um, this is agile methodologies and lean methodologies. It's uh, uh, one of the concepts how you can bring the first expression of the system and having prototyping and quick delivery. 
Um, this is the concept doesn't matter what your life cycle would be, what, what the methods of delivery you have. It might be even waterfall, who not, now not many people using. As you know, waterfall is very slow process. People prefer prototyping, for example, or agile or, you know, different methods. But embedding security inside the requirements and then use that, as a point, starting point, and then develop this secure software using that requirement. Then they test this requirement through the traceability, through every single stage of life cycle, can be done in any uh, software model. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I see that. Like, thank you so much for sharing. I'm, I'm learning a lot. I'm myself, I'm like engineer, industrial engineering, but we actually really didn't have any topic related to security and uh, developing softwares and thinking about the security part of it. So that's pretty interesting for me to know. Um, just out of curiosity. Yeah, can I, yeah, sure. yeah, I can add more because I understand the tendency in a new development, in a new startup companies who are trying to be first in the market. And that's what are the causing the problem. So to develop software or software application, which are very popular now, there a lot of people are working and using the third party and, and a cloud as a service. The products are coming to users and in the market very quickly because if you start going through the software development lifecycle process, it takes longer. So this is kind of be first in the market, uh, beat competitors, uh, make it cheaper to have it, you know, first prototypes and second. And sometimes we we are really struggling because as a researchers, we try to explain to the real systems they're working that do not use one or another product because they built without security inside. So you opening your system to vulnerable attacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Out of curiosity, I want to know, why did you start working in cybersecurity? How did it come for you? What, what's the thing that you're interested and passionate about in this industry? Yeah, actually, I was always uh, interested in the technical work, even since my childhood. I was really mm-hmm. playing around with some, you know, clocks. I, I developed the undo the clocks and, and then try to put it all together. I was even 10 years old. So curiosity and a technical you know, exposure, because my father was an engineer, we all sometimes have influence from our parents. So that was a big influence from my father. And then I didn't have any doubts where to go. So I become an engineer and engineering work. And I'm lucky that whatever I I actually learned in my university in the control systems, I gradually developed to the cybersecurity in control systems. So it was not straight line in my career, but I started with the measurement systems and control system, understanding the PLCs, RTUs, how that you can control on operational side systems. Then I've been doing a little bit of work in modeling and simulation, which was not related to critical infrastructure system, but more on uh, the control of the space systems. 
And after when I migrated to Australia, I started working in complexity and started working in, in the research in, in the control systems from cyber perspective because people started seeing that emerging trends connecting the uh, control systems. And that's where my knowledge came along. So I was engineer, also software developer, and then the cybersecurity came later, which on the top of the knowledge which I knew through the years, giving me another, you know, avenue for my career. <laughs> wow, it's it's so fascinating. And out of curiosity, how is it in Georgia in terms of gender diversity in engineering? Because I, I know, for example, I coming from Iran, we always were, were told as child, as children, that if you're a good you know, student, you go to engineering or medicine, there's no other option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like we are, our schools are separated, you know, boys and girls. So obviously we were always comparing ourselves with the, you know, girl next to us as, as a, you know, as a girl. And, and engineering had been a very straightforward path for us. And nobody was asking, oh, why should I be an engineer? That was, yeah, you're a good student, you become an engineer or, or a doctor. Mm-hmm. How, is it in, how was it in Georgia? Uh, actually, in Georgia, was uh, never asked myself if I want to be an engineer or will be surprised when I saw in class 50% female, 50% male students. So it was normal for me. And then when I arrived to Australia and I got my job at Motorola Software Center, among the engineers, we had maybe 5% women. Wow. Then moved to, to academia I, and I've seen the same numbers. So five, seven maximum are the girls are taking engineering or computer science courses because I think the whole concept to be, a, you know, successful for girls, they think, medicine or law. So engineering will never be considered in in Australia. And that's what I want to change because I think and I believe the women should choose engineering and computer science. And how can we propagate and encourage them to join us? We give them more examples as cybersecurity. I like to say cybersecurity is everybody's business. We all know that if you have established technically firewalls, proxies, and everything, the protocols, filtering, you still have someone, there may be a human who might make mistakes intentionally or unintentionally, or the analytics skills you need to have to analyze what's going on with your system, which is women very often very good in analysis and and try to find out the mistakes or abnormal behavior. So I've seen now through my career as an educator for some courses, which are base courses in cybersecurity to give students understanding fundamentals of cybersecurity attracts more women now from different fields, from business, from accounting, and, you know, they, they try to change their profession a little bit, still being accountant, for example, and go to do forensic accounting. So understand more of the cyber side or uh, what what's going on there. So this kind of concept, and now I've seen increase to about 24, 25% women in that courses are female. Mm, wow, that's that's very interesting because 
uh, it just makes me think that the reason maybe the, the country such as my country, Iran, such as your country, they have the, I mean, we don't have this question in our mind, why should we become an engineer? It was exactly the same for me. And, and I think it's very much linked to the financial reward we can get in, in order uh, by, by going and studying engineering. I think that's, I mean, there should be like, you know, some, some ways we can convince women in other geographies, such as Australia, that there is a big opportunity, career opportunity to go to these fields. And there's also, as you said, like cybersecurity involves all of us. It's just like, you, you need to know that because it's impacting you a lot. So why not actually building your own world and your future by creating it, <laughs> protecting it, you know? Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. That's uh, that's really true. Why are you excluding yourself from such exciting profession, which you are very good cybersecurity person, the professional? You, it's it's always demand. So we have shortage. It's a global shortage of cybersecurity professionals in any field, in networking, in forensics. Mm-hmm. Regardless of gender. Regardless of gender. We just need more specialists yeah. and we want to train more mm-hmm. and more people. And it's very much a fast-growing industry. So I, I imagine there are like more and more um, new ways of actually doing cyber attacks that are, you know, that the innovation goes forward. So we need professionals who are up to date and they are willing to, to be hired and active and start, you know, working on the technologies. My question is actually how big and important is, are the cyber attacks? And if you have any numbers related to the cost, maybe that they, they cause and damage, for example, infrastructures, um, that's a very good question because people try to measure in a dollar value, but very often when we deal with a critical infrastructure and the companies which are suffering or stop their operations because of cyber attacks, it's not only monetary, it's also reputation. And okay. that's what they, they don't want to show that they vulnerable for those attacks or being already compromised. So that is like organizations, they usually know the financial constraints and they try to invest, but they based on risk management. So if they're aware where the vulnerabilities are and how to deal with that and prioritize and, and put defensive controls in a place, that is the best outcome. So, yeah, how can you measure three or four days not being, um, you know, distributing gas when it was uh, compromising in colonial gas pipeline? The people were angry. So that's not only mandatory, it's, it's a frustration in the community. We now live in a ecosystems. Whatever happens, it somehow reflects others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It just made me think of, for example, the um, the leakages of the emails, basically by by hackers. That happens like a lot for companies. I just this morning I received like an email from Celsius, which has a which was a platform blockchain crypto platform. They got bankrupt, and now like you, I re- received this email that oh, actually, our emails are also in the hands of some hackers, and <laughs> so just the whole reputation goes on, and 
it's it's like it's very very much linked to other costs because you have cost of opportunities, cost of sales leader, and they're just associated to all of that. But so I understand the market is is big and it's happening a lot everywhere in the world. But can you give me maybe some more information about how big is the market and what? What are, for example, special countries who are uh, or companies pioneering how much money, you know, they are spending and where do they put it more? If you have any idea uh, or like if you have any information on top of your head about this, the market, I would love to hear that. Uh, I do not have it on top of my head at the moment. Um that's okay. I'm not looking for like, I feel like a really concrete number, but I just want to understand that because for example, we hear a lot about Russia and China basically uh, hacking, let's say like, uh, I don't know, um, United States um, government portals and stuff like that. Like um, I, I imagine like, you know, United States, Russia, China, even sometimes Iran, <laughs> they do that. So it, how uh, do you know, like what kind of attacks they, they do attempt or what are what, what are the countries that are the most pioneering or what kind of technologies they exist out there, even like linked to AI? Um, you know, if you look the latest statistics, who is the most hacked country? So it's United States. And there was uh, the, uh, the information in one of the, you know, the reports saying between uh, May 2006 and June 2020, uh, they had 156 uh, major attacks, not counting the small attacks. And Australia's number, you know, also had 16 attacks, which is giving their fifth place. Fifth place. So it's uh, the attacks are so sophisticated now. If you look into what happened to Ukraine, the attack on on their critical infrastructure power system, it happened and black energy malware was ejected. So that was prior to war to Ukraine. So attacking the critical infrastructure and several attacks to their government. So the, the hackers finding out the weakest place or, or link to hack and it's a uh, information warfare so they try to destroy existing system or trying to create a chaos in the country so that's kind of approach uh, some organizations and some countries are taking yeah it's we've seen a lot of a lot of attacks and all different small and and big and not very small but even ransomware attacks, it's so easy to to establish and, and send and hoping that someone will click a link and they can, can get money. Yeah. It doesn't need to be huge money <laughs> uh, invested into that. We all know that. T- tell me a little bit more about the sophistication of these attacks. How how are they? How do they find that loop, like the hole and then the injured? you know, they, they make that happen, how, how easy it is today and sophisticated? Um, they're quite clever who works in creating ransomware me- I messages. <laughs> yeah, they usually attacks and I, I've seen the situation like some universities, they've been uh, hacked because the attackers use the right time to create 
the the very sophisticated email saying this was the survey sent to you earlier. Please link to this link and vote. And the people were really thinking that is a related to their work. So they, they had that kind of situation. So if if the uh, attackers, they know what's going on inside the organization and they create the message around this situation, uh, the more likely that people will believe and, and link to, to that. Yeah. It just reminded me of actually a very, very... Um, like multiple emails I keep receiving and they have become more and more sophisticated uh, basically by the national post in France, the delivery uh, office. And you receive these emails saying that, oh, your parcel didn't receive to you. Click here so you can get it back. And, you know, it. the first time I saw them, I was like, oh, I actually have a parcel and I, I don't know what happened. So then... And then I realized, hmm, but that doesn't make sense. You know, <laughs> they always have my number. They always call or I don't have to go and click somewhere. I, I receive a paper, but like things, they, they have become more digital and more and more post offices, they don't give you any paper. They just send you a message on your email. And, and that's actually happening a lot. Another thing is like basically when you're looking for apartments here, you have subscribed to certain platforms. And then basically they are all fake. All the emails they send you like, okay, your contract has been confirmed. You can click on here to get access to the whatever, like the key or something. And then it's just bam, like <laughs> pirating yeah. your passwords. Yeah, this is exactly the latest attack. If you look into the media, uh, Deakin University has had 42,000 records uh, stolen, um, compromised. So this was through the SMS service. So someone had access to that service and 10,000 messages were sent like you received from par about the parcel. And it's not one link. And, and the second one was uh, if you don't want to receive that messages again, click here to unsubscribe. And a lot of people, this is a people you know, psychology. It's it's how people behave. They might think, okay, um, I'm not putting click on, on the one, the first link, but second one, unsubscribe. But that unsubscribed was a also fraudulent. So you click. But then after that, they're asking for your name and then your business card or credit card. So that's when you have to think why you provide. It will never, ever be uh, asking like this, e either banks or post office or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's very yeah. I mean, every time somebody asks for my car, I'm like, yeah, why I'm giving that? But do they always have to ask you for the car? Is there any other, for example, sophisticated ways that attackers are using today without you even providing your card and bank account, they can actually steal valuable things from you? Yeah, you know, the ransomware they can paralyze everything, whatever you have. It's it. You you click and you you uh, receive that. So you just can't get access to your data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what what's their interest in doing that? Oh, monetary. That's definitely financial. So then they say, oh, we can un unlock your computers. If you pay, and they're very clever, they're putting not the big numbers that the people think, oh, that's not very expensive. Let's pay and and be in 
away from trouble. <laughs> That's why companies, uh, you know, most of the time hire hackers, the best hackers for their own security system. <laughs> That's very clever. <laughs> Can you tell me what are maybe some of the mind-blowing innovations in cybersecurity related to AI? How, how AI is helping this industry? Do you have any examples to share with us? Um, the AI which I use in my research it's giving me very deep exposure to what's happening with the data because the data is so enormous, the heterogeneous data coming from different devices and different formats. The good machine learning techniques will find out um, the abnormality. So that's kind of process I'm using. What else? Uh, also, the systems which I'm dealing with, they trying to be resilient to cyber attacks, but zero days attacks, which is unpatched, which we don't know if that will happen. So the abnormality can be captured through the AI. That's another way how I use and the new direction we're now using for using that machine learning and AI approaches for create the special algorithms that not only protect the system and make it resilient and recover quickly if something happens, but create a special algorithms which continue operation regardless of the attack and still uh, complete the mission, so complete the uh, operations. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so fascinating. And and you deliver that to basically, I mean, could we imagine that can work for various industries? You mentioned like uh, industrial IoT. Is there like how basically a company would be able to to use that? Would be sitting there and like asking them all the, let's say, different data points they have and then program that in a way that, okay, we find this, for example, at, an abnormal behavior from your system and that can be flagged by your program. So then it will be trained more and more, even if that happens in the future, then their software, uh, their operating system will continue working and and finalize the mission. Is it, is it something that basically this is a process that would happen? Yeah, it's a lot of uh, technological advancements and helping the organization to monitor what happened in their IT side. So that was a networking connection to the internet. And we know a lot of um, companies provide this software, which can monitor, they can alarm, they can raise some solutions for them, like uh, they can drive the data from, from this software. Um, my research is on operational side where we develop the technology to find out how these IoT devices, when they connected to Brownfield, to the legacy systems, and that's where they're opening the link to, to attacks. So it's quite new way. And as you said, if we need to work with some organizations, whatever we develop for one system, it's not exactly will be working for another system because those IoT devices, they're specific for a particular system. If that system electrical grid, uh, we have renewable systems, which are new and many of them already developed with security embedded inside, but they also bring 
the data to the global grid where the legacy system connected. So if you look into the water systems, their sensors and actuators are different to electrical systems. So, so on. Uh, it's, that's why as a researcher, it will be like much easier. You develop the generic solution and that solution will apply for any system. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. We hear a lot saying that the next world war or a- any like, you know, big war will be a cyber war, like digital war. Do you agree with this statement? Um, yes and no. I think cyber war, it's already we've seen the people compromise. And it's a national, you know, especially developed by nations, some attacks. But, you know, it's a battlefield in internet and battlefield in the real world. I think combination of both we might try to avoid. And that's why we we need to do everything to protect our critical societies and critical infrastructures. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people should be scared about that like for example we're talking a lot about ai we're talking a lot about in in defense especially about let's say sophisticated drones and now more less and less we have actual soldiers as humans getting involved in physical wars and more and more the technology is actually getting sophisticated and sending them out the to the field and combining that with cyber attacks it's it's it looks very scary do you do you, are you scared of that do you, what do you think about it Uh, You know, in the literature, I've seen a lot of debates about this because the technology embracing us to a new potential situation where we use on a normal way those devices, let's say drones, they help us to protect the uh, the borders or control the sharks in Australian shores or get beautiful photographs or footages of something in a mining area where, you know, 50 degrees heat where nobody in humans will go. So it's, it's normally people say what's the benefits and what the consequences might happen if they compromise. So if we develop all these devices with security inside, we might have the good outcome. So talking about this, it's it's still levels of autonomy, which systems have only fully autonomous operation or the human is still in charge to make the final decision. So that's, again... It's up to us. <laughs> it's up to us, up to humans. But in, in a data which I... I'm very technical and now working with people who are looking into human factors in cybersecurity, I can see where that may come from because human makes sometimes mistakes, intentional, unintentional. So the machine doesn't make the, the uh, mistake because that's programmed the way how it should program. But at the same time, the program can be modified if it's hacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Wow. <laughs> there's so much to that. And then there's so much more that is going to come. So it's just, I, I see this field such a exciting field and there's always things to do. So you, you don't get bored. <laughs> um, I, I would love to talk about being an educator experience. Um, so as an educator, uh, by the way, how long have you been teaching just out of curiosity? Oh, actually, I've been teaching since my PhD. So I completed my PhD in Georgia, and it's a part of the whole PhD duration, starting in the first year doing your research, but also you have the special hours to cover in a class. So if you have less hours, they do not consider you as a PhD student. It was like compulsory different system to Australia because that is not, not required. If you do PhD, you can uh, just write your thesis. So when I was in my PhD stage in Georgia, and, and also I got to PhD very early, straight after the university, I had a choice. How old were you? Uh, I was uh, 21, I think. <laughs> wow. Was, uh, 21. Oh, my God. Yeah. You, you started your PhD at 21? Yeah. The, the, the thing oh, my God. I, I, had, <laughs> I had the choice because I, I had all uh, high distinction in my, in my you know, diploma, whatever we had, the certificate records. And at that time, the engineers, to get the engineering certificate you had to go after your five years education at university go for another two years and get your professional experience and then you will get your certification but because I had already high distinctions they I, I won the scholarship so I choose to go research rather than start working in industry as an engineer <laughs> and that's where I started even uh, sometimes I was uh teaching to people who were more mature students that I was that, that <laughs> who were older than yours <laughs> yeah that's right but that, was, that should be like an awkward position at a, how, how was it for you uh it was great I, I liked actually teaching and and that's what I did when I was a PhD student and then I had uh, only a research position in in Georgia and didn't do much teaching and then when I arrived to Australia, I, I worked as a software engineer. And then when I decided, oh, what's next? And I felt like even at Motorola, I was contributing inside the Motorola. Uh, we had a special training for employees. And I put my hands up uh, saying I can teach so I can pass the knowledge which I know to new, uh, new people coming to, to the company. And I really, really liked that. So after uh, I finished my work at Motorola, I got job at university. And since that, I started and, you know, never, never finished <laughs> uh, and never, never wanted to give up <laughs> teaching. Never stopped. Never stopped. Never stopped. <laughs> what, what do you like? What do you like about teaching others? I think the most rewarding for me as an educator to see how my students grow. So I had students from master level up to PhDs. And, you know, they, they came to me very, very fragile, I would say. Um, they didn't know how to write 
how to communicate the knowledge they can get through the course. And then you teach them gradually to develop the skills and then they stay longer after even masters. And then they come with ideas and we talk and, and we write papers together. And then maybe in two, three or maybe five years, people come to me saying, Elena, you know, now I want to do more study. Can I do PhD with you? So this kind of connections and putting a little seed in the early of their careers, it's much better for me. And I can see that a gradual development that's the most rewarding. <laughs> wow. I, I totally can relate to, to your feeling. I, I'm not act, actually at all at any level close to you. <laughs> not at all. But just out of... Really out of, you know, surprise, I started teaching for one semester to master students here in Paris at Sciences Po on AI, the foundations of AR for business. And like, interesting enough, our difference of age is not a lot, maybe just, you know, for five years. And it's just this feeling of that, oh my God, you're like sort of ex creating an extension of yourself. Like you're really connecting to people and that connection when you talk about it I, I I could definitely feel that and it's just so rewarding when you see you could plant the seed and inspire someone so they go further and actually way further than you that is you know just so rewarding so mm. <laughs> it's so beautiful That's true. yeah um what do you think that has contributed to your leadership path and the leader that you're today. And I honestly, after, I mean, I knew that and I knew uh, you from basically what I witnessed from the Women in the Eye Awards, from your profile, from your work. I, I knew how an amazing leader you are. But after our chat today, I'm just in such an awe and inspiration of you. So I would love to know what, what really contributed to your path. I think in my path, always contribute my leaders who lead me. So I lead a lot of uh, junior academics, but it's always two ways learning. So you learn from, from them, you mentor, and you learn also from mentees. And that's that's always the the way I think you establish that kind of connections and you meet exceptional people on your way of career progression or changing countries. You come here uh, in Australia, you do not know anyone, and then suddenly you hear the person talking publicly and you listen and you think, okay, that person achieved this and this. I might try as well. So you kind of always need to have inspirational leader that you can follow and also contribute. So this kind of approach I always suggest uh, to people I mentor and also, you know, openness and trust in between people. I I lead as an academic chair for women in cybersecurity affiliation in Australian affiliator. And I always try to bring people along with me, try to lead them to their careers, their aspirations, to their awards, to make sure they, they're happy what they do. I love that. 
I love everything you you just mentioned, and I think that's a perfect closure to our conversation today, Elena. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, for all the inspiration you gave me and our audience today. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's a great pleasure to to talk to you more. This was Elena Sidnikova from Flinders University, Australia. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Askari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.